WHMP. Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined this morning by Michael Clare, who is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for the Nation Magazine, prolific author on defense and geopolitical issues. He has been with us regularly since before the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and we really appreciate his time and insights. Michael Clare, thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to start this conversation by asking you about what is the front page today, and it's not Ukraine so much, it's really Trump. And I am wondering whether or not, from your perspective, this uh, explosion, uh, understandable explosion of publicity and media coverage about Trump, making Ukraine a less uh, central focus of media attention and political attention in the United States, whether that has an effect on Russia's view of the war in Ukraine, and whether or not Putin says, maybe I can play for time because if I can get Trump back in the White House, I can get Ukraine. If I can get DeSantis in the White House, I can get Ukraine. Is that a concern from your point of view? Uh, Bill, what's happening, Bill, really, this is a a lull in the fighting in Ukraine, which is why it's not on the front page. It has nothing to do with Trump. It's a lull because Russia uh, conducted a winter offensive, it's being called, uh, beginning in January, February, March, with the intent of of capturing all of the Donbass region, composed of Donetsk and uh, Luhansk provinces, Luhansk provinces, and they, they control some of it from 2014. The goal was to capture all of it, to make good on Putin's claims that that was part of Russia. So there was a big offensive and it's, it has stalled at the city of Bakhmut. Many of your listeners have probably read the headlines about the fighting there. They call it the meat grinder because so many Russian soldiers died or were wounded there and apparently the Russian offensive has run out of steam and so the fighting is slowed down. Meanwhile, we're all waiting for the Ukrainian offensive to begin. Everybody is expecting a Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, possibly to begin on April 16th, the, the uh, Orthodox Easter holiday there's some suspicion that's when it'll begin but the ukrainians have been working closely with nato with the united states to build up its offensive attack capabilities and we haven't seen them come into play yet but my guess is we're going to see a major ukrainian offensive and that's going to come in in the headlines that's going to bring ukraine back into the headlines michael Claire, in that regard Tell me more about the stories I have been reading that there may not be enough munitions, enough bullets, enough bombs on the Ukrainian side. Is that true? Both sides have been suffering, both Russia and Ukraine have been suffering from a inability to maintain the pace of battle. The pace of battle in this war has been absolutely extraordinary. We're talking about World War II rates of fire of especially of artillery shells. 
the battlefront has just been more like World War One, actually, where you have trench warfare accompanied by constant artillery attacks day after day, and they're using up standard shells, ammunition for artillery. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not the sort of thing that Congress, that, that the Pentagon goes before Congress and asks for. They usually ask for the fancy, you know, guided missiles and the like. So there has been a shortage on both sides of these basic ammunition supplies, and that has had an effect. So the Ukrainians have been going all around the world looking for more ammunition shells. My guess is they've stockpiled some for this coming offensive. This coming offensive, which I have not read a lot about, and I apologize if I've missed the stories, is this a potential decisive uh, series of military confrontations? I mean, is this possible that Ukraine wins the war with this offensive? Okay, so my best guess is that this will uh, alter the line, the dividing line between Russia and Ukraine in the war, uh, and and that at the end of it, there will be some peace negotiations. That's my guess. But I do think Ukrainians are going to push the Russians back from w where uh, they reached uh, in February a year ago, especially in the south. Uh, the talk is it's very possible that the Ukrainians will attack in the middle of the Russian line in Donetsk province to try to destroy what's called the land bridge between the Donbass region and Crimea. Before Crimea was isolated and then the Russians uh, were able to attack uh, south from Donbass and create a land bridge connecting Russia to Crimea. It seems as if the Ukrainians are aiming to sever that land bridge and isolate Crimea and maybe even attack Crimea. So we'll have to see what's going to happen, but it is likely that the Ukrainians are going to make a major drive to push the Russians back. Whether they can drive the Russians out of Crimea and all of Donbass, that I think is not, is beyond their capacity. Michael Clare, this is, that, this is Buzz. Is this because of the Western uh, munitions and other support that the Ukrainians got that they're mount, they're able to mount this counteroffensive? Yes, they the Ukrainians are being equipped with offensive assault type weapons, tanks and armored personnel carriers and the like that that would allow them to break through Russian defensive lines. Now, the Russians have been building defensive lines all across the area that they now occupy, trenches and tank fortifications and the like. And to break through those, you need heavy assault weapons, especially tanks. And that's what the Ukrainians have been receiving. Have they enough? To break through Russian lines remains to be seen. Uh, but my guess is by the summer, both sides will have exhausted their capacity for offensive operations. There will be a new line drawn, and that will be the point at which negotiations will begin. What are we to make of this nuclear saber rattling from Putin again? I had thought that 
Putin had walked back his threat to use tactical, that is battlefield nuclear weapons. And now we're hearing about potential allies of Russia having nuclear weapons on their soil closer to Ukraine, easier to deliver. Should we be losing sleep over that, Michael Clare? Well, I don't lose sleep over it because so far we haven't seen any evidence of Russia actually redeploying its nuclear weapons. When you see that happen, then you start losing sleep. But they haven't actually done anything. I think this is a indication of Putin's, um, let's say, desperation that he, he keeps throwing everything he has at Ukraine and nothing has worked. His forces uh, have, have failed to achieve his basic objectives. So I think he's a little panicky about what weapons the NATO forces have given to Zelensky and that we may that he may see experience severe defeats on the battlefield in the months ahead. So he is doing saber rattling, but so far he, he isn't following it up with actions. Although the president of uh, Belarus has said that the Russian nukes are coming, are we to discount that? I think we discount that for now until we see actual uh, activity. You, you know, you can't you can't just move nukes around. You have to have elaborate facilities for them and protections. And you, you would see evidence of that from satellite photo photography. And there has been no such indication. Uh, but uh, put this in context, it's being used in Washington to uh, provide ammunition for those who want to abandon the New START treaty altogether and start building up U.S. weapons again for the first time in half a century and to unleash a new nuclear arms race on the world. So let me ask you about that. The budget, Biden's budget has now been presented. It's an enormous military budget. What should we focus on in that document and those proposals? So it's, it came out a week ago, week before last, uh, a request, a budget request of $842 billion for the Department of Defense and another $44 billion for the Department of Energy's nuclear weapons complex. So you add it all up and it's what, 886 billion dollars for national security. That's before Congress gets its hands on, on the budget. They're going to add $50 billion or more like they did last time around. So we're, we're creeping up on a trillion dollar defense budget. And the weapons that they're procuring in this budget are two kinds. They're, they're procuring the ordinary uh, nuts and bolts of warfare, ammunition and shell, artillery shells and the like, and more ships, more planes to fight Russia and China. But they're also investing hundreds of billions of dollars to get ready for the wars of the future. Uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, hypersonic weapons. So it it's planting the seeds for multi-trillion dollar budgets in the years ahead. 
We are speaking with Michael Clare. He is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College and the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. When we come back, I want to ask him about the Taiwanese president's visit to the United States and Central America. What is apt to happen with China because of that? And I want to find out about the assassination of the blogger in Ukraine, a big supporter of the war effort. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. We'll be right back. And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, I you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. This week's Shop Tuesday is Simple Gifts Farm Store. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Simple Gifts Farm releases gift certificates for their farm store in North Amherst. Get organic produce, pasture-raised meat, free-range eggs, local dairy, and more at Simple Gifts Farm Store. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Simple Gifts Farm Store in North Amherst. Available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home addition? Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. Meet Sister Holiday, a chain-smoking, heavily tattooed queer nun turned amateur sleuth in Scorched Grace, a new mystery novel by local author Margot Duahi. Pick up Scorched Grace at Broadside Bookshop in downtown Northampton. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Browse Broadside to your heart's content. Order virtually any book on the Broadside website, then pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Attention students, apply now for the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association Student Broadcaster Scholarship and you could be awarded $2,500 towards the 2023-24 academic year. You must be a Massachusetts resident with a declared major in the communications field and currently enrolled or planning to enroll in a broadcast program at an accredited two or four year college. Deadline to apply is Friday, April 14th. The Northampton Radio Group is a proud participant in the MBA Student Broadcaster Scholarship. For an application, visit massbroadcasters.org scholarship. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, who is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, and prolific author, author on defense and geopolitical issues. We have been talking about Russia and Ukraine. A recent news report about an assassination of a blogger, a story that is uh, going to become more prominent in the next day or two. Tell us what happened, Michael, please. Uh, so far as you know, I, I've been able to learn uh, a, a blogger. There's a whole group of 
people in Russia called military bloggers, mill bloggers. These are people who are allowed to comment on the war from the right. The people on the left have been totally silenced. So the only discussion about the war is coming from these so-called mill bloggers on uh, to the to the right of Putin who are calling for uh, even tougher war against Ukraine. And Maxim Fomin, he, he was the blogger who was killed yesterday in St. Petersburg by a bomb, apparently. Uh, he was somebody who uh, was critical of the Russian war machine, the, the general staff, for not being aggressive enough in Ukraine, especially in this last offensive and like other military bloggers, they they believe that the Russian military has done has been uh, has been inadequate in its attack on Ukraine. That the, there should be an all-out war by Russia. You know, mobilize everybody, throw every weapon into the fight, wipe out, wipe Ukraine from the face of the earth. Is his stance, and and, and so. And 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 so he's he was killed, and the question is, was he was this done by Ukrainians who were angry because of his racist attacks on Ukraine and call for 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 so much violence, or in my mind, was he killed by by people from the military uh, who uh, were angry at his attacks on the military leadership? It sounds like a lot of people had a lot of reason to try to assassinate him or a lot of people with different political and military perspectives. Uh, how is Putin playing it? it? Putin is trying to be two things at once. He's trying to be, on one hand, the military commander in chief and prosecuting a war in Ukraine, which he calls a special military operation, and at the same time to be president of a nation at home that's not supposedly feeling the effects. He hasn't wanted to turn Russia into a war state and uh, and, uh, to, and mobilize the entire population because he's afraid of the protests. So he's walking a fine line between war and peace. And the bloggers have been very critical of him for not mobilizing the population into a total war effort. But Putin wants to pose Russia as a normal country that has good relations with China and so on. So it's very difficult for him to be in this position. Well, you mentioned China and there is a state visit of sorts that's going to happen this week. Uh, tell us about that and tell us about how Russia's rapprochement with China and vice versa is apt to affect the United States and the war. So this is one of the big questions uh, facing us. Is uh, China, has China become a all-out ally of Russia or not. Uh, President Xi Jinping of China was just in Moscow for a three-day state visit. There was a lot of backslapping and mutual uh, buddyship being shown on, on state television in both countries. Uh, and there was a lot of promises of Chinese and Russian trade. 
uh, which is vital to Russia to continue prosecuting the war, but no talk of military assistance. And so it's unclear what promises China made. I think that that uh, Xi Jinping told Putin that nuclear weapons are off the table, which is uh, at least somewhat reassuring. Uh, and I, I also think he told Putin to wrap it up. That's that's my sense that China wants this war to come to an end because it is driving a wedge between China and its foreign trade partners, especially in Europe. Uh, I think China wants to see the war come to an end uh, so that it can go back to business as usual, which is, uh, you know, economic growth. So that's one side of the equation. But let's go on to what's happening this week. The president of Taiwan, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, is on a visit to Central America, which still has one or two countries that recognize Taiwan as China. They're diminishing because Honduras chain switched sides last week to recognizing China instead of Taiwan. But there are a few countries left and she's visiting them officially. But on her return, uh, I think at the end of this week or this coming weekend, she's expected to stop in California and meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And this would this would uh, signify closer ties between the U.S. and Taiwan, and something that the Chinese have Chinese leadership has denounced as uh, intolerable U.S. interference in Chinese affairs. And uh, they're likely to send up their planes and ships in a threatening manner. But do something that's actually militarily aggressive as opposed to symbolically aggressive? That remains to be seen. That's why we may have to come back to this bill uh, and buzz uh, maybe next week because it's they've threatened major activity, which could be last time a House Speaker met with uh, President Tsai. That was Nancy Pelosi in August of 2022. Uh, they fired ballistic missiles, 11 ballistic missiles over Taiwan and send ships and planes in the surrounding areas was pretty, pretty threatening. So will they do that much, less or more? That's the question. Uh, professor, Buzz, you have a question. I sure do for Professor Michael Clare, who is a professor of peace studies. As a progressive myself, who aspires for a world that's the, where the geopolitical overriding aspiration is peace, um, there's so many people, and I know so many listeners, who feel the way I do. And we're paralyzed. We really, we, we get information from you, Michael Clare, and people like you, but all we have is information. But we want to do something and proactively support um, a drive towards peace. What should we be doing in order to sort of not just demonstrate our feelings, but sort of bring us closer to a world of peace? So my answer to that is based on numerous trips to Washington. I, I travel monthly to Washington, D.C. to work with my colleagues in the Arms Control Association and other uh, peace and anti-nuclear groups there, is that Washington, that is to say Capitol Hill and the administration, are caught up in a frenzy of anti-China hostility and antagonism. 
The defense budget reflects this, the biggest defense budget since World War II. It's all about fighting China. And there's this ironclad belief that the U.S. must prepare for war with China, that war with China is inevitable. And there's no opposition to that. So as long as that's the case, it's going to be very hard to move in the direction of peace. So my answer to that is, is for people to tell their representatives that, we, that war with China is not inevitable, that there are reasons we must cooperate with China, namely climate change. We cannot solve climate change without cooperating with China. We can't solve the future virus infections, epidemics without cooperating with China. So that's the, that's the message is to tone down the anti-China rhetoric and look for ways to cooperate peacefully. We are going to leave it there, at least on a semi-optimistic note. Michael Clare has been our guest. He is a professor of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. We appreciate your time and your insights. You're being with us on a regular basis to help us understand and make sense out of a senseless war. Michael Clare, thanks so very much. Of course. Thank you. And when we come back, we will be speaking because it is Mayor's Monday with the Mayor of Northampton, Janina Louise Shera who will have with her and us today, the new superintendent of schools. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton is rescinding its offer to their new superintendent, Vito Perone. Perone and the committee entered contract negotiations last week after he was offered the position the morning of March 24th. After contract review, Perone made three requests in an email to Chairperson Cynthia Kwasinski and Suzanne Colby, executive assistant to the committee. Perone claims the women felt he was using a microaggression by addressing them as ladies in an email, according to the Gazette. Perone explained he grew up in a time when using the terms ladies and gentlemen was a show of respect. School committee members refused to comment on the situation and are reopening the search for superintendent. Rural roads in Western Mass are getting a much-needed boost. Last week, the Senate passed a $25 million amendment to the state's Chapter 90 fund. Senator Joe Comerford was a major proponent of the additional funding and spoke to her Senate colleagues about the proposal ahead of the vote on Friday. And rural municipalities have many dirt and gravel roads, making up more than 30% of a municipality's road network in some instances in my district. Besides the additional funding, Comerford argued the entire formula for how Chapter 90 funds are dispersed needs to be adjusted to accommodate cities and towns with smaller populations but many miles of roads. The original formula was devised more than 50 years ago. And four Franklin County farms are among the 23 who were awarded grants through the Agricultural Food Safety Improvement Program and U.S. Department of Agriculture. Just Roots in Greenfield, Hager's Farm Market in Shelburne, and Quonquit Farm in Waitley are among the recipients. For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be breezy and milder. Highs 54 to 58. Tonight, mostly cloudy. Chance for showers. Overnight lows 40 to 44. And the other for Tuesday, mostly cloudy. Chance for showers. Highs in the lower 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El medicamento para revertir la sobredosis, Narcan, pronto podría estar disponible para comprarse sin receta, anunció el miércoles la Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos. La aprobación de la FDA del aerosol nasal Narcan, el nombre comercial del medicamento Naloxona, significa que el medicamento podría estar disponible más ampliamente en los Estados Unidos a medida que el país continúa lidiando con una epidemia de opiáceos. Narcan de venta libre salvará vidas, dicen los expertos, pero el costo afectará el acceso. Emergent Biosolutions, la compañía farmacéutica que produce Narcan, dijo el miércoles que esperaba que el aerosol nasal estuviera disponible en los estantes de las tiendas y en los minoristas en línea a finales del verano. No dijo de inmediato cuánto costaría. La administración aprobó por primera vez el aerosol nasal Narcan en 2015 como medicamento recetado. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden ofreció el miércoles una perspectiva optimista sobre la salud de la democracia en todo el mundo, declarando que los líderes están cambiando el rumbo para detener un retroceso de las instituciones democráticas que ha durado años. Al abrir su segunda cumbre sobre la democracia, Biden buscó destacar los avances esperanzadores del año pasado a pesar de la guerra de Rusia en la vecina Ucrania y las tensiones de Estados Unidos con China por su influencia militar y económica en el Indo-Pacífico y más allá. El presidente citó señales de progreso en todo el mundo. En casa, Biden señaló su impulso estancado para la protección del voto en el Congreso como evidencia del compromiso de su administración de apoyar la democracia. Las cumbres que Biden prometió como candidato en 2020 se han convertido en una pieza importante del esfuerzo de su administración para tratar de construir alianzas más profundas y empujar a las naciones de tendencia autocrática hacia cambios al menos modestos. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And because it is Monday, it is Mayor's Monday here on Talk the Talk on WHMP. And we have with us on this Monday, the mayor of Northampton, Gina Louise Scherer, who has with her and us today a very special guest, the new superintendent of schools beginning July 1st, Dr. Portia Bonner. I welcome you both to the show. I'd like to begin, if, if I might, with the mayor. Madam Mayor, you must be thrilled that you have in place a new superintendent of schools. Your reaction to having her join us, Dr. Bonner, and then we have lots to ask Dr. Bonner, but let me start with you, Mayor Gina Luishera. Good morning, everybody. Yes, I am absolutely thrilled, and I'm very excited to introduce the community to Dr. Portia Bonner. She was hired last week as the next superintendent for the Northampton Public Schools. Um, she'll be starting July 1st. Um, she, just to give her a little bit of background, although I'm sure she'll talk about herself, she's the interim superintendent right now for the Bosler Public School District in Connecticut. Um, and is formerly a superintendent of East Haven, Connecticut and New Bedford, Mass. Um, she's also an educational consultant who assists districts in evaluating their academic programs. Um, she wrote a book last year that I'm hoping we get to talk to her about a little bit because it's something that I haven't had a chance to talk to her about, but I'm incredibly interested in. Um, and, uh, you know, we were just very um, impressed with her. And I, I think that uh, the community is going to have a wonderful partner in public education with her. Well, let me turn then, if I might, to Dr. Bonner with the, I guess, obvious question. Uh, why Northampton? Dr. Bonner? Oh, well, good, 
Good morning to everyone. Why Northampton? I was looking for a school district that is diverse, that's on the cusp of, of transformation in terms of their drive for equity and diversity, and uh, just looking for a place that I can uh, call my home and to be a part of the community of learners. So I'm very excited about Northampton. I have another, perhaps too obvious question, if you'll uh, forgive me. Uh, why be a superintendent? Uh, you have a lot of experience in education. Why is superintendent the place you would like to be and will be? Ah, so I have found in my journey in life that in order to be impactful and to be the most influential in making change is to be at that senior position, working with a school committee that really has a focus to wanting to improve education for all students. And in all the levels in which I've served, I find that superintendency, as hard as the work is and how political the work is and how savvy you must be and agile that you must be, I find that that is the position in which can make the biggest difference and the biggest impact. So that's why superintendency, although some people may say I must be crazy <laughs> because the work is really, really difficult, really, really challenging. But um, I'm up for the challenge. I, I love challenges and I love learning to work with new people who have new innovative ideas, who really see uh, the future of their kids being successful and being able to navigate the changing times that we're in. So, Dr. Bonner, would you be kind enough to go back, and since this is our introductory conversation, and tell us a bit more about your educational experiences, and by that I mean where you have taught, where you have acted as an administrator, and what were the most significant ones to you? Uh, yes, I'll even go as far back as that. I am a product of both public and private education. I started my career in the public school system, and and I, I my family background, uh, parents were very strong in terms of the importance of education, so they really impressed and imposed that on on my siblings and myself, and and so from that. I started off in the classroom as a biology teacher uh, in an urban high school. So I really was pushed into the trenches, and uh, I love teaching. That's definitely my, uh, the first calling um, in terms of my, of my talents and gifts. And so from, from teaching, uh, I had the opportunity to go and start working on my doctorate. And the work in which I focused on was curriculum and instruction. It was not leadership. And so here I learned that the, the, the cusp of anything that we do in the schools is surrounded upon what we teach and how we teach our students and how we assess them to make sure that they are learning what we want them to learn. And so... Uh, my background was in curriculum instruction, and, and so from there I had the opportunity to serve as, um, as an assistant superintendent in a district called Hamden in, in Connecticut. So most of, my, most of my service work is in Connecticut, with one exception of uh, my baptism by fire in New Bedford, Massachusetts. <laughs> and so 
from there, I moved into superintendency and um, and really kind of just pressed my way and and persevered. There were some times and gaps in my in my journey where I had to step back, where I did a principalship and a vice principalship and did some consulting work, but then pushed forward into back into the superintendency. And I will share that my uh, my last full-time superintendency was East Haven, but then I served as an interim for 19 months in Basra. I did finish that work in August. So, um, so I am anxious to get back to the grind and working in Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm wondering if you have, uh, have thoughts that you care to share with us with regard to uh, and I asked this question because you mentioned uh, valuations and, uh, uh, and, and assessments. Um, if you have thoughts about uh, MCAS and high stakes testing and how you think those tests should or shouldn't be used uh, in, in schools. So we know that as a public, uh, a public entity, as, a public edu- as public educators, that we have to comply with some of the legislative laws that are in the land. And so we know that MCAS is something that has been uh, dictated to us to assess our students. And so for me, assessments can be used as a tool to really kind of assess our programs. Are we doing the right things to to prepare our students? Are we providing the right instruction? Are, are they able to think on their own? Can they problem solve? Can they um, think decisively with with uh, with sources and, and evidence and you know and, and apply it in new experiences? So for me, uh, assessments, whether how I feel about them or not. We use them for good as opposed to be punitive and, and instead of punishing districts because they're not meeting a set standard in which, uh, in which the, the state or in the federal government has mandated on us. But, so, but for us, it's a great tool to use to gauge if we are indeed um, doing what we want to do as a district to meet our goals and to focus on our students, on our community of learners, to make sure that that they are ready to be uh, a part of the global society, to be really, really ready to interact and to be uh, innovative and to to be a contributor to to the to the next generation and those generations that follow. So there's more to assessments than just the punitive measures that we see. Well, let me turn then, if I might, back to the mayor, uh, Mayor Jean Louise Scherer. We've been speaking with Portia Bonner. Dr. Bonner is in, will be the new superintendent of Northampton Schools beginning July 1st. Our, our state senator, Joe Comerford, is pushing uh, very hard to uh, uh, revoke the graduation requirement of an MCAS test. I'm wondering if you are involved at, at all in that. Uh, Mayor, and if you have some thoughts you'd care to share about where that stands. Um, so I'm, I'm very aware of uh, Senator Comerford's, you know, push and her advocacy around this. And um, it's something that I'm watching very closely. Um, you know, obviously, well, you know, I think Northampton, we have a lot of um, in-depth conversations about this topic. And, and I think that we as a community are, are standing behind her um, and her work to, uh, to, to, 
find a way to have, um, as Dr. Bonner was saying, um, have this not be punitive or, or have it not affect our kids' learning in the way that um, these, um, you know, these standardized tests have, have had. Um, so, you know, we're watching very closely and, um, and, and cheering her on. Well, let, let, me, let me turn back then to uh, Dr. Bonner and, and ask you, assuming that his tests become more of an assessment tool and less of a punitive tool that deprives students of, among other things, uh, a high school diploma, uh, where would you see uh, the Northampton schools being five years from now? I mean, if you could, I, I understand it's a bit of an unfair question because you haven't even started the job, but I'm wondering if you look at this and say in five years, here's what I'd like to look back and say, here's what we've accomplished. Can you give us some sense of that? Wow, so great question. So I know that during my interview process with the school committee and even the search committee, there was a lot of things that were said within the questions that they were asking me. And so from that, there is a desire that there's better communication and that we make better connections with our caregivers within the community. And then also to strengthen our partnerships with uh, community organizations and the, the five college consortium. There's also that piece about equity and what that really looks like within the district. We, we speak it, but are we ensuring it? Does it look uh, that, that can we actually see the manifestation of equity in our practices, in the programs that we provide, and in the fact that every child is given an opportunity to achieve? And then also looking at our programs and how we're offsetting the changes that we have to do because of budget constraints. You know, are we still being able to give more to our students with less? And how do we maneuver and, and, um, change those things, embedding more technology uh, along with the human aspect of, of, of educating our children. How can we better use that? So for me, in five years down the road, we would have completed a strategic plan that, that puts these pieces in place where we are sustainable in terms of our practices and programs that we offer our students, that we give them every opportunity to succeed, and that and that we are also stable in terms of our, of our budget, looking forward to the needs of our students as our enrollment changes, whether it declines, which right now it's on the decline, but let's see what happens within the next few years and how um, things change, looking at the possibility of bringing more of our students back into the system that have left to go to charter schools or private schools. So there's, there's all kinds of things in which we can look forward to within the next five years. And I would probably have a better definitive answer for you uh, in about 90 days once I'm in the district <laughs> to tell you really after I've had a conversation with the families and, and uh, the school committee members and community members in terms of really pinpointing the direction in which we want to go. We are speaking with Dr. Portia Bonner. She will be the new superintendent of the Northampton Schools beginning July 1st, and the mayor, Gina Lee-Shera. Dr. Bonner has just mentioned two topics that are crucial to the schools, technology and money. Those are topics we'll pick up on the other side of this break in just a minute. We'll be right back. Them kids alone. 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. Celebrate the CWC. April 4th, the Center for Women and Community celebrates 50 years providing leadership and advocacy to Hampshire County. Join the Center for a day-long drop-in event with interactive exhibits, guest speakers, awards honoring important people in the Center's history, live performances, and a silent auction with fantastic items to bid on. Drop into the Old Chapel at UMass anytime from 10 to 6 on April 4th to join the fun. For more info and to preview the auction, visit umass.edu slash CWC. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Co-op. Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this Mayor's Monday, we continue our conversation with the Mayor of Northampton, Jean-Louis Shera, and the new Superintendent of Schools as of July 1st, Dr. Portia Bonner. I would like to know a bit more about the selection process, so let me turn to the Mayor on this. Dr. Bonner has been hired, signed a contract, she begins July 1st. Uh, You are the chair of the school committee, I believe, by virtue of, or you used the presiding officer uh, of the school committee meetings by virtue of being mayor. Did you have any direct involvement in the hiring process itself? 
So yes, uh, by our charter, I am the chair of the school committee um, and a voting member on the school committee. So we had um, an extensive process. We worked with the Massachusetts Association of School Committees, who are, was our consultant on the search. There was a, um, we had a search committee that was sort of an initial screening committee that had um, a really remarkable array of community members, educators, administrators, staff, two fantastic students um, who served on it. Um, and they did a really, really great job of bringing forward um, fabulous candidates for us. And then we, we solicited a lot of community feedback. So we had forums um, and um, surveys and opportunities to meet all of the candidates. Um, and then the school committee um, deliberated, interviewed, of course, the candidates and uh, deliberated and voted um, last Monday. And that vote, it was, the, was the vote public, what the vote was? Yes, it, it was done in public. So it was um, a 9-1 vote for Dr. Bonner. Well, Dr. Bonner, I'd like to uh, return to you the, and ask you a few questions about something that's been very much on my mind, which is the use of technology in schools. And I've been just uh, amazed at what uh, artificial intelligence is able to do. Uh, it seems to me both an opportunity and an enormous uh, chasm to, to uh, manage to uh, navigate. I'm wondering if you share your thoughts about technology in the schools. Absolutely. So during uh, the pandemic, we learned our capacity of what we can do better with technology, you know, with, with the provision of, of, of hybrid type classes, being able to teach remotely. And so there are some things that we learned that we still continue to use and, you know, the Google Classroom and those kinds of pieces. But they're always with something good. There's always that, that caveat of something bad that could happen. And so we know with technologies, as we have experienced it already through the years, that students can uh, use that for, uh, you know, plagiarizing work uh, instead of actually getting their own creativity and so on. So we have to work around that. The same with, you know, using cellular devices in the classroom and so on, computers. We have to work around that. You know, um, we don't want to just discard something because of, um, of the fact that, it, that kids can cheat from it, but we can use it to somehow in some way, in a better way, in terms to educate. Students are going to be in the world of this technology, this AI that's, that's really moving aggressively in, in, in this generation. They're going to be a part of this. And so um, we need to learn how to navigate and work with it as opposed to remove it out of the classroom. And this really could help us in terms of looking at uh, our, our budget where, you know, I, I would prefer humans, but some in some cases we may have to provide um, some AI substitutions or AI slash human in, in terms of a hybrid. You know, I take a look at some of the recommendations that have been made in the budget to address that deficit. And so here, again, we could better use technology, better use our, our human workforce to really uh, do the work that we need to be done in the schools. So technology, yeah, there's some things that we're going to have to put in place uh, to navigate the use of it, but um, we can use it for to benefit us in the long run. 
Dr. Bonner, in the minute we have left, I would like to ask you to uh, address two related issues. One is you have an enormous commitment to diversity and equity and inclusion. Uh, you're also an African-American woman coming to a community that is not all that diverse. And I'm wondering how you put those two things together. All right. And so remember that diversity is not just limited to race, but diversity is about uh, what each person brings to the table, their uniqueness, their, the, the, their qualities of life, their perspectives uh, of, of, of how they see things. And so when I talk about diversity, I look at uh, what makes up the school system. And, and it, there's such a mixture of not only perspectives, but the, 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 the different communities that's represented. And Dr. Bonner, I hate, I hate to interrupt. I want to okay. hear more. Back on, and we're going to do that. Thank you. I want to thank you. I'm sorry we have to run, but we do. Thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to the community. Can't wait for you to be here on July 1st and for our continuing this conversation. Thank you, Mayor. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connections Breast Cancer Support Group, we can laugh or cry. With our burdens lifted, even for a little while, we can go back to our lives better able to handle dealing with cancer and all it entails. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services WHMT free of charge. Northampton and WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. Students in Nashville are expected to walk out of their classrooms and walk to the state capitol to demand tougher gun laws. The walkout marks one week since the elementary school shootings there that killed three nine-year-old children and three adults. Vanderbilt University student Bobby Sloan is a volunteer with Students Demand Action. Gun violence is the leading cause of death in American youth and it is entirely preventable and entirely unnecessary. And lawmakers need to be doing more to keep their citizens safe. The Newport News Virginia teacher who was shot and wounded by a six-year-old student in January has sued her school district for $40 million. Abby Zwerner says school officials ignored several warnings that the boy had a gun and was in a violent mood. Former President Donald Trump is expected to fly to New York today for his arrest tomorrow. Here's CBS's Robert Costa. Former President Trump and his legal team are preparing to fight what his lawyer Joe Tacopina is calling a political persecution. Of course, I very much anticipate a motion to dismiss coming because there's no law that fits this. The former president is expected to appear in court on Tuesday afternoon, escorted by NYPD officers and Secret Service agents. There, CBS News senior legal analyst Ricky Kleeman says he'll be processed like any other defendant. He will have his picture taken, which becomes a mugshot. He will have his fingerprints taken. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich has appealed his detention by Russian authorities who accuse him of spying. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg among those weighing in on the arrest. His arrest is of uh, 
a great concern. It is important to respect freedom of the press, the rights of journalists. Stolten spoke shortly after announcing that Finland will join NATO tomorrow. It could be another expensive summer for driving with Saudi Arabia and other major oil producing nations announcing they'll cut production by more than a million barrels a day starting next month. Gas buddy analyst Patrick DeHaan. What it means for motorists is that they will likely have to contend with prices at the pump that will go higher than previous expectations. The Sire record label is well known for its diversity of musical styles from disco to new wave. Seymour Stein was the founder of Sire Records, the man who signed the talking heads heard here, along with the Ramones, the Pretenders, and an unknown singer whose demo tape he heard in the early 80s. Well, Madonna turned out to be his biggest get. Seymour Stein has died at age 80, record industry remembering him for being prescient, and then some. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 287 points in early trading. This is CBS News. Streamline how you hire with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. If you own a small business, you've probably been hearing a lot about the ERC. How it's worth up to twenty-six grand per employee, how easy it is, you know the spiel. So why am I still talking to you about it now? Because many of you still haven't filed a claim. But Innovation Refunds can help you close the book on this thing. They're backed by one of those big CPA firms the corporations use, so they can determine once and for all if your business qualifies. And it's free to find out. Go to innovationrefunds.com. That's innovationrefunds.com. Guys, fellas, men, are you Roman ready for the weekend? Right now, generic Viagra, a.k.a. Sildenafil, is just $4 per dose at Roman. Just complete a free online visit with a U.S. licensed healthcare professional. If medication is appropriate, Roman sends what you need in discreet packaging with two-day shipping. Generic Viagra from $4 at Roman. Go to roco slash bed. Do it today and get 20% off your entire first order. That's roco slash bed. There's a big merger in the sports and entertainment world. The excitement's outside the ring for the WWE. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton is rescinding its offer to their new superintendent, Vito Perone. Perone and the committee entered contract negotiations last week after he was offered the position the morning of March 24th. After contract review, Perone made three requests in an email to Chairperson Cynthia Kwasinski and Suzanne Colby, executive assistant to the committee. Perone claims the women felt he was using a microaggression by addressing them as ladies in an email, according to the Gazette. Perone explained he grew up in a time when using the terms ladies and gentlemen was a show of respect. School committee members refused to comment on the situation and are reopening the search for superintendent. Rural roads in Western Mass are getting a much-needed boost. Last week, the Senate passed a $25 million amendment to the state's Chapter 90 fund. Senator Joe Comerford was a major proponent of the additional funding and spoke to her Senate colleagues about the proposal ahead of the vote on Friday. And rural municipalities have many dirt and gravel roads, making up more than 30% of a municipality's road network in some instances in my district. Besides the additional funding, Comerford argued the entire formula for how Chapter 90 funds are dispersed needs to be adjusted to accommodate cities and towns with smaller populations but many miles of roads. The original formula was devised more than 50 years ago. 
And four Franklin County farms are among the 23 who are awarded grants through the Agricultural Food Safety Improvement Program and U.S. Department of Agriculture. Just Roots in Greenfield, Hager's Farm Market in Shelburne, and Quonquit Farm in Waitley are among the recipients. For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be breezy and milder. Highs 54 to 58. Tonight, mostly cloudy. Chance for showers. Overnight lows 40 to 44. And the other for Tuesday, mostly cloudy. Chance for showers. Highs in the lower 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And it is first Monday in April. And what a timely time to be first Monday in April. Because we could do our first Monday segment with constitutional scholar and professor emeritus of law from Western New England University, Bruce Miller. Hello, Bruce. Hey, Buzz. Hey, Bill. Hey, Dan. Good to see you all. Well, there is anticipation sizzling in the air. Uh, I should say I share it. And it has to do with what's going to be happening in Manhattan in the next day. Absolutely. What are your thoughts? Well, it looks as though uh, we are going to see a former president uh, arraigned on criminal charges for the first time. Um, And these uh, these criminal charges look like they're going to be about the payment of hush money through Michael Cohen by President Trump uh, to Stephanie Clifford, also known as Stormy Daniels. Those are the reports we're getting. Those are the reports we're getting. We, of course, uh, and I think those are pretty likely true. Uh, Now, the way you put that question, Buzz, suggests that there may be more than that, and there may well be. We can only guess what the uh, what charges there might be beyond those. But the interesting thing about the uh, Stephanie Clifford Stormy Daniels part of this is that is that it's not uh, uh, unlawful for the president to have paid hush money uh, to uh, Stephanie Clifford in order to keep her story from going public. What is unlawful uh, is is uh, to conceal that by filing false uh, documents with federal and state uh, election officials. And that is what we expect President, former President Trump to be accused of. That uh, is a crime. But on its own, it's only a misdemeanor. What is the difference in New York between a misdemeanor and a felony? Uh, basically, in, 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 in most jurisdictions, the difference between a misdemeanor and a felony is jail time and the amount of jail time. A, mis- a misdemeanor is usually something that, for which you can serve no more than a year. A felony is a serious charge. And of course, uh, there's a very good argument that if you're going to cross a political Rubicon of charging a former president uh, w- with a crime that it ought to be important. And, and I think that's, that's a, a good argument. It ought to be important because we don't want to see the judgment calls that prosecutors have to make all the time uh, being used in ways that appear to be going after someone for who they are rather than for what they did. Um, and, and here, uh, uh, is it a serious offense warranting Uh, crossing this political line um, depends under New York law on whether or not the concealment, the false reporting uh, of of the payment as a legal fee to to Cohen uh, rather than as a payoff to Clifford, 
whether that is done in order to violate another law. And here, under New York law, the answer is pretty clearly yes. The reason was to make a donation uh, to Trump's political campaign and, and uh, to conceal donations to political campaigns. How do we know that? Well, because the point of making the payment was to help Trump get elected in 2016. It's a payment by Trump to his own campaign that is being concealed. It's a straight-up violation of New York law. That makes the misdemeanor into a felony. As quite often is the case, it's the cover-up that's treated more seriously well, exactly than the underlying right. crime. Here's the problem. We have in the United States both federal law and state law. And the New York state laws apply as far as they go unless there's something in our federal law that prevents New York from applying its law. This is a concept known as the preemption of state law by Congress. And Congress has, in its own campaign contribution limiting statutes, preempted state laws that prohibit unlawful donations to campaigns. That makes this clear violation of New York law a non-starter because it's preempted. This is a big problem for Mr. Bragg. And Mr. Bragg I, being the district, the attorney, district attorney of Manhattan. Manhattan. And I don't envy the position he, he found himself in. Now, there is another provision of New York law, and this one uh, prohibits uh, uh, falsification of documents in order to promote the election of someone by unlawful means. Regardless of whether regardless Bruce of Miller. the amount of money, regardless of who's doing it, but to promote the election of someone by unlawful means. And that's regardless of whether you're, the election has to do with a federal election or a state election. On the face of it, that's right. It, it applies to all elections. Is that the out, Bruce Miller, for, for the district attorney? That, that is the out under state law for the district attorney. That's his best argument. Uh, that that's what these contributions um, amounted to. Now, there, we don't have a clear case of federal preemption, but Trump's lawyers are going to argue that that one is preempted as well. And that presents a very tough legal question that will involve a parsing of various federal statutes and regulations in order to ascertain whether or not New York can enforce that law against former President Trump. Bill, you have a, a question or comment for Bruce Miller? I have a question. Sure. Uh, I am moved by your statement, Bruce Miller, that if there's going to be a prosecution of a former president, it better be for something serious. Yes. This should, this should not be putting Al Capone in jail for tax evasion when you're dealing with a former president. I am moved by that. It seems to me that a corollary of it is that the proof should be overwhelming. It should be really clear. And to me, when you're discussing the complexity of state and federal law and uh, the possibility that we have never, or the probability, we have never seen prosecutions like this and this combination of factors, state and federal, uh, possibly tax problems, a, a defense from Trump, because his lawyer has already said it, which is he wasn't trying to cover up uh, something for the election. Mm -hmm. He was trying to protect his wife and his children from his misdeeds. Yep. Um, 
or at least the claims of these this, this uh, dalliance. Um, and it seems to me that that calls, particularly the legal aspects of untested legal theories, is a well, thin ice to be standing on, and I appreciate your thoughts about that. Well, well, you, you know, I, I think there's two things that are important: a serious offense, and second, very practically, you want to win. And the reason why you want to win is not so much to get Trump, but so that the purposes of the criminal justice system operate and are seen to operate here, and that is to prevent this from happening again by Trump and to deter others from doing it. And to if say the, that nobody is above the law. Nobody is above the law. And, it, and if this case is brought, and if on the facts, that is, did the contributions happen, were they for the purpose of, con, of concealing, uh, were the, was the misreporting for the purpose of concealing the payment, if all of that happened, and as you suggest, Bill, uh, on the facts... Um, the DA has Trump dead to rights, and then the case loses because of a legal argument. It seems to me that the entire purpose of the enterprise is at that point uh, undercut. Why were they going after him if even though he did it, it wasn't really uh, illegal? That's what makes this, this, this particular indictment uh, so uh, difficult. I don't mean to criticize Bragg, for, although it may seem like I am, for bringing it, only to suggest that it's a very nervy thing to do, a tough thing to do, and that there are respectable arguments that under in our federal system, as a matter of law, this um, indictment uh, may not hold up. Yeah. Except that he has between 20 and 30 different indictments. We call yes. them counts, but counts. there are 20 or 30 yeah. different crimes we're talking yep. about. We got, we got to see what they are. But to the extent that they depend on the falsification of records in campaign filings, and, and that's the heart of what we know about the wrong with respect to the payoff to Stephanie Clifford, then, uh, then it seems to me we run into at least the need to overcome these problems. There is another possibility for uh, Bragg, and, and that is that what Trump did um, it, it violates federal law. And it, it, clearly Trump did violate federal campaign contribution limits, at least on the theory that the purpose of these payments was to aid his campaign. Right. The, 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 his Stormy Daniels encounter, yep. if it's true, yep. that happened in 2006. It wasn't yep. until 2015 right. that he made these payments. Made the payments in, 20, in 2015 before the election in order to get elected, probably a violation of federal law. Here's the rub on that one, or the two rubs. The only time this theory has been tried, it was tried in a federal prosecution against uh, John Edwards. Um, for uh, his effort to uh, to cover up uh, being uh, the father of a child uh, born out of wedlock. John Edwards was a North Carolina North senator Carolina senator who ran who ran who ran for president, and and that got to a jury. The jury deadlocked. They were they would not convict Edwards on this charge, um, and the prosecution chose not to bring it again. We just don't have a test of this, uh, this idea that a payment uh, for purposes of covering up uh, a previous act amounts to a campaign contribution. I think, it, I think it 
probably does, matching the law to the facts under federal law, but we don't have a successful prosecution on this theory. More fundamentally, how can a New York state prosecutor take upon himself the authority to enforce federal criminal statutes? Big problems with that under under our federal system. I mean, all we have to do is think about somebody like uh, Paxson, the attorney general down in, in Texas, deciding after Biden's no longer president to find something in the Texas criminal code to go after Biden on immigration en enforcement and charge him uh, with, 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 excuse me, find something in the United States code on immigration enforcement and charge him with a federal crime and say, I can do it. I'm the state attorney general. There's good reasons to consolidate the enforcement of federal law um, with the federal authorities. Now, again, those are not absolutely decisive. Bragg can say, well, I'm using a federal offense in order to support a state law prosecution. I ought to be able to do that. Uh, one jurisdiction borrows from another all the time. I like that argument, but it's a very creative argument. And when you see first time ever prosecution of a former president combined in the same sentence with novel legal theory, you think, oh boy, what can go wrong here? Well, I have to, uh, Bruce Miller, as a constitutional scholar, I have to ask you the question, and we haven't seen the indictments yet yep. or the accounts yet, but um, do you think Bragg is making a mistake if this is all about non-disclosure on federal paperwork of this payoff? Uh, I, I, what I'm ready to say, I'm, I'm so torn on this. I, I'm, I'm glad it, there are many reasons why I'm glad it's not me making, making the decision. On the one hand, the logjam needed to be broken. Um, Trump needs to be held accountable for all of the things that he did. Bragg's decision breaks the logjam and I think makes it more likely that some of the other more serious grounds for indicting uh, Trump are, are brought to fruition. Um, secondly, this was a violation of law. It was a serious violation of law. The problem with it is the federal-state relationship, uh, which represents values most of us believe in, uh, gets into the mix here. It's a very, very tough, tough call. I do understand better now why Vance held off on this charge. Um, I, my guess is that Bragg changed... Cyrus Vance Cyrus, His predecessor. The, right. Vance's uh, predecessor. district attorney, yeah. Is that, is that maybe he knows something that we don't know and that we will see what that is tomorrow. That's, that's at least my hope. Uh, just a quick question before sure, we take Dan. a break. This is Dan. Um, I heard on television last night that somebody said that when Bragg was running to be uh, the DA, uh, that he ran on prosecuting Trump. Could that in some way cause the prosecution to derail, to say that this is some sort of political vendetta of some sort or, or a promise? Well, certainly uh, Trump's lawyers will argue that this is a political vendetta, that this is selective prosecution, that Trump has been singled out for who he is rather than for what he has done. 
those arguments usually don't get a defendant very far. And the, and the reason for that is that, is that first of all, um, it, it, it's legitimate for, for a candidate to talk about what kinds of crimes he's going to prosecute and why. And the line between I'm prosecuting this kind of crime and I'm going after this person because they did it is a thin one. So it's not likely to work very well. On the other hand, we have... Uh, federal issues um, mixed in with this, that is, can uh, a state prosecutor pursue issues of federal law, we could see um, conceivably a motion to dismiss the indictment raising these questions go all the way up. Um, and we could see an, an, an appellate court judge somewhere conceivably getting a hold of this. Uh, but I think it's I think it's uh, it's unlikely that that argument will work. I you know I'm all, you can never you can never be sure about any kind of prediction you make, especially concerning former President Trump. No, you could never be sure of that. I I'm looking forward to two things. I'm looking forward to tomorrow very much, but also looking forward to continuing this conversation with law professor emeritus Bruce Miller. Be right back. Says what you need to hear Cause Trump is on your side Yeah, Trump is More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. This week's Shop Tuesday is Simple Gifts Farm Store. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Simple Gifts Farm releases gift certificates for their farm store in North Amherst. Get organic produce, pasture-raised meat, free-range eggs, local dairy, and more at Simple Gifts Farm Store. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Simple Gifts Farm Store in North Amherst. Available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Celebrate the CWC. April 4th, the Center for Women and Community celebrates 50 years providing leadership and advocacy to Hampshire County. Join the Center for a day-long drop-in event with interactive exhibits, guest speakers, awards honoring important people in the Center's history, live performances, and a silent auction with fantastic items to bid on. Drop into the Old Chapel at UMass anytime from 10 to 6 on April 4th to join the fun. For more info and to preview the auction, visit umass.edu slash CWC. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And you are also listening to First Monday, our monthly segment with constitutional law scholar Bruce Miller, who's talking about 
what we suspect is going to happen tomorrow at the uh, arraignment of former President Donald Trump. Bill Newman, you have a we question. Were, yeah, we were, we were talking during the break uh, about a couple of aspects of this. One is uh, whether there might be tax fraud uh, counts in here because Trump claims these were legal expenses, which they weren't. They were payoff. They were, which is, I understand it's a negative word, but there was hush money payments, which is not per se illegal. Everything that flows after that could well be. I think that's worth mentioning. I also would like to return Bruce Miller to this question of selecting the defendant as opposed to having a crime that itself is being prosecuted. Not so many years ago, a lawyer who we all hold in high regard, Harvey Silverglade, uh, wrote a book called Three Felonies a Day. And his thesis was everyone commits three felonies a day. Now prosecutors have carte blanche to select who they want to get for the crime. And I'm wondering whether or not you think that theory, uh, Silverglade, of course, being critical of that process, whether that theory applies here. Well, I think in, in, in theory, it applies to every single prosecution because every prosecution undertaken by every prosecutor involves an exercise of discretion. What kinds of crimes are important? How much proof do I need to prosecute them? I cannot prosecute everything that might come before me. Judgments have to be made all the time. Uh, Justice Jackson, long before Harvey uh, made the point, made the same point when, when he said that uh, all, all of us um, have at some point in our, in our recent lives, pro probably without knowing it was a felony, committed some kind of felony if you scour the statute books um, far um, enough. Um, and he did that in a, in, a, in a Supreme Court opinion. So the basic premise, I think, is correct. I don't think that it applies here to former President Trump and the decision by Bragg to prosecute him. And the reason for that is that it's, it's a profoundly important offense to uh, our system of politics for uh, candidates to be falsifying the sources and reasons for their expenditures of money in order to conceal relevant information from the public. Um, this is the kind of offense that it seems to me a, a prosecutor can decide to pursue in a way that is even-handed that would be pursued under the same judgment criteria regardless of who the offender was. And, and, and I think, I think the, the people's instincts on, on this, and, and, and of course I'm generalizing when I say people in this divided country, uh, are, that, are that Trump is being pursued by Bragg for the offense and not because he's Donald Trump and, and not because he's running for president again, but because uh, paying money uh, to, to uh, Michael Cohen in order to redeem his losses for paying off Stephanie Clifford in order to cover up information that would have mattered uh, right uh, 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 at the eve of the presidential election in 2016 is a serious thing. It's not nearly as serious 
as as trying to prevent the succession of power on January the sixth, uh, which which both Georgia and uh, the state of Georgia and the special uh, counsel are pursuing. Uh, but it's nevertheless serious, and 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 I don't think it's it's legitimate uh, or accurate for Trump to argue that he's being singled out for who he is. Of course, he will argue that um, anyway. Yeah, I've read that there are 31 different cases in various jurisdictions percolating against Donald Trump, and when you talk about this breaking the logjam, um, perhaps it will. I also want to um, remind people that President Clinton, it was lying. It caused not only his impeachment, but a civilian lawsuit against him um, uh, that he settled out of court and that he got disbarred for. Lying when you're a president is is something that can be punishable, especially if it's being done in order to violate the law. Well, I, I think I think that's true, but but I I, w- I would never want to turn to anything that happened in the Clinton matter as an example to use here of something good, uh, because I I don't think that was that was legitimate, um, th- at least not very much of it. Uh, he was pursued by uh, uh, the. Uh, uh, independent counsel, star, uh, c- criminally. And it was part of a plea deal that he surrendered his law license. And that was, in a, in, in, in a sense, a, a perjury, um, uh, a threatened perjury indictment. And I totally agree with you. I wasn't offering it as something yeah. good. What I'm saying is, for all those naysayers who are yeah. saying it's unfair to hold Trump right. to account yep. for just a little yep. lie, yes, I'm saying it's been well, done, done before. Well, it has been done before, but I wouldn't, I would not want to hold Trump uh, uh, criminally accountable for just a little lie. It's got to be a big lie, uh, and it's got to be a big lie. New York's theory here is right: a lie that is intended to advance another felonious, unlawful purpose, and that I think, from what we know so far. There's good reason to believe that that's what happened here. Well, Professor Bruce Miller, thank you so much. I am so glad that First Monday fell between uh, before Big Tuesday. I think we're going to continue this conversation with uh, former Justice Department attorney John Pucci on Crime and Punishment segment, and uh, tomorrow's going to be a big day. Thanks for joining right. us, Bruce. Thanks a lot, Buzz. We'll be right back with Writer's Block. But I keep living this day like the next will never come. Oh, help me, but don't tell me to deny it. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton is rescinding its offer to their new superintendent, Vito Perone. Perone and the committee entered contract negotiations last week after he was offered the position the morning of March 24th. After contract review, Perone made three requests in an email to Chairperson Cynthia Kwasinski and Suzanne Colby, executive assistant to the committee. Perone claims the women felt he was using a microaggression by addressing them as ladies in an email, according to the Gazette. Perone explained he grew up in a time when using the terms ladies and gentlemen was a show of respect. School committee members refused to comment on the situation and are reopening the search for superintendent. Rural roads in Western Mass are getting a much-needed boost. Last week, the Senate passed a $25 million amendment to the state's Chapter 90 fund. Senator Joe Comerford was a major proponent of the additional funding, 
and spoke to her Senate colleagues about the proposal ahead of the vote on Friday. And rural municipalities have many dirt and gravel roads, making up more than 30% of a municipality's road network in some instances in my district. Besides the additional funding, Comerford argued the entire formula for how Chapter 90 funds are dispersed needs to be adjusted to accommodate cities and towns with smaller populations but many miles of roads. The original formula was devised more than 50 years ago. And four Franklin County farms are among the 23 who were awarded grants through the Agricultural Food Safety Improvement Program and U.S. Department of Agriculture. Just Roots in Greenfield, Hager's Farm Market in Shelburne, and Quonquit Farm in Waitley are among the recipients. For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be breezy and milder. Highs 54 to 58. Tonight, mostly cloudy. Chance for showers. Overnight lows 40 to 44. And the other for Tuesday, mostly cloudy. Chance for showers. Highs in the lower 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. From the seemingly impossible to the virtually unbelievable. The Peking Acrobats are coming to UMass Thursday, April 6th. The Peking Acrobats, pushing the limits of human ability, defying gravity, one spectacle after another. Mixing time-honored Chinese folk music with high-end special effects and magnificent acrobatic feats. The Peking Acrobats at UMass, an exuberant evening with the festive pageantry of a Chinese carnival. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Peking Acrobats, in the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall at the UMass Fine Arts Center, Thursday, April 6th at 7.30 p.m. From the seemingly impossible to the virtually unbelievable, the Peking Acrobats. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million. A bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance, local people, local service, local insurance, in partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And it is time for our wonderful Monday segment. Every Monday we bring you Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. Hello, Megan Zinn. Hello. Um, so my guest today is writer and illustrator Jared J. Krasaska. I'm very excited to talk to. Um, Jared J. Krasaska is the New York Times bestselling author and illustrator behind more than 40 books for young readers, including his wildly popular Lunch Lady graphic novels, select volumes of the Star Wars Jedi Academy series, Hey Kiddo, his autobiographical his autobiographical graphic novel, which was a National Book Award finalist, and his new graphic novel, Sunshine. And Jared lives here in West Western Mass. And on Tuesday, April 18th at 7 p.m., 
Jarrett will launch, will launch Sunshine with a live, unabridged reading brought to life via multimedia presentation and with local performers. And you can find more information on that on the Academy of Music website. So welcome, Jarrett. Uh, thank you for having me, Megan. I thanks, appreciate it. Thanks for being here. So to begin, tell us about Sunshine, this new book. Sure. Sunshine is uh, my second graphic memoir. So uh, second real-life story told in graphic novel format. Uh, whereas my first book, Hey Kiddo, was about uh, growing up and dealing with my mother's addictions uh, to, mm -hmm. to heroin and her incarceration and, and being raised by my grandparents and how art saved me. And uh, that was a, a, a story that spanned multiple years. The story of Sunshine, and the subtitle is How One Camp Taught Me About Life, Death, and Hope. It takes place in one week during my senior year of high school in which I volunteered to work as a camp counselor at a camp that served uh, children with critical illnesses like cancer. And uh, it very much radically changed the trajectory of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, like the experience itself, uh, you sort of probably go into that topic and thinking that it's going to be horribly depressing, mm -hmm. uh, but it's uh, the experience and, and I hope the book is any, anything but, but uplifting and hopeful, uh, albeit, Yes, a heavy experience because it is a very heavy topic. Yeah, yeah, it is an uplifting and hopeful and beautiful book. Um, what is the um, age range? I mean, obviously it's for adults, but um, is there sort of a, a lower end of um, young people that it's appropriate for? Age well, I'm sorry to correct you, but it's actually for young adults, young which adults could. Okay, good point, so, good point. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I write books for, for young readers and perhaps someday I'll write books squarely for the grownups in the audience. Uh, but all of my books could be also enjoyed by the adults. So Sunshine, like Hey Kiddo, is for ages 12 and up. Okay. Um, if you're familiar with Hey Kiddo, mm -hmm. you'll know there are a number of expletives in the book, and that's only because it stars my grandmother. And, and my grandmother <laughs> doesn't feature as heavily in Sunshine, so there are less expletives. I'll, you know, they're really, uh, d depending on your level of um, comfort, you might say that there are no expletives in there, but there, if you're more prudent, you might you might <laughs> take your grin to the word "damn it." <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that that would take um, a great sensitivity to be bothered by that. Um, so, um, how did you first get connected to the camp? My name was chosen from a hat. Ah, so <laughs> fate. I went to I went to a Catholic high school in Worcester, Massachusetts, where uh, you know, community service was at the core of the education there, and. It was a long-standing tradition to send uh, seniors to volunteer at Camp Sunshine. Mm -hmm. uh, and significantly more students want to volunteer for this program. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's at the level of prom in oh, regards wow. to that's, tradition. That's wonderful. At the high school I attended. Um, but more, more students want to go than they can send. And, uh, you know, based on the variety of students that were chosen to volunteer, there's there's no doubt that names were chosen from hats because it was not all AP students. You know, there were there were there were students from every every walk of life, every uh, level of demerits and detention. And so it's it's it was very much like the Breakfast Club in that you you had all of this this hodgepodge of, mm -hmm. of students thrown together to in this intense experience. Yeah, and that, that's clear in the book. And my guest is Jared J. Krasoska, and we're talking about his new graphic novel, Sunshine. Um, what did you find most surprising about your first experience at the camp? Uh, you know, how fulfilling it was. Mm. Uh, there's, there's this certain um, enigma that comes in volunteerism that uh, 
you 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 think that you're doing it for somebody else, but then you realize that you get far more out of it than you put into it. And no matter what level of of heart and grit you put into volunteerism, you get way more out of it. This is uh, Buzz, and we are going to continue our conversation. We're going to take a break uh, right after this. We'll be right back with Jarrett Krasowska talking about Sunshine, his new book. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. I need to laugh, and when the sun is out, I've got something I can laugh about. I feel good in a special way. I'm in love, and it's a sunny day. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. Looking for the perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub & Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit HangarPub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. Looking for a fun and competitive day out with friends or the office team? The Junior Achievement Annual Golf Tournament is on Friday, June 9th at Crump and Fox in Bernardston. The day will include many contests, giveaways, food, and more. Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts helps prepare young people for real-world career and financial success through in-school and after-school programs focused on financial literacy, career exploration, and entrepreneurship. To register, visit jawm.org. I'm going down to the corner store. Sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom and pop shop, supporting the other mom and pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling, Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. Is your fence old, falling down, or maybe you just don't like how it looks? Then check out Valley Fence. We're a new division of Valley Home Improvement, who your friends and neighbors have trusted for over 30 years with their home renovations. Valley Fence installs and repairs all types of fencing throughout the Pioneer Valley. 
Get ahead of the spring rush and call Valley Fence for a free estimate today. Love your home. Love your fence. Visit valleyfencema.com and schedule a consultation today. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back eavesdropping in a conversation uh, between Megan Zinn for our Writer's Block session with Jared Krozaska, who's written his new graphic novel, Sunshine. Yeah. So um, launching back into our questions, um, how much of the book is, you know, it's obviously been um, you know, a couple decades since your experience there. And um, I would imagine there's some things that you um, can reveal, some things that you can't. How much of it is factual? How much of it is, you know, or some of the composite or recreation um, for memories? Every single, you know, event and moment and emotion in Sunshine is com- completely factual. However, um, as, I, as I mentioned in the, uh, the, the author's note at the end, uh, because I worked at camp for, for a number of sessions, I combined uh, different experiences. You know, uh, I, I, came, I went into it realizing, well, this might be the only chance I get to write mm-hmm. about my experience working at a therapeutic camp for kids with cancer. So um, while it centers on that first experience and those first emotions, um, you know, I brought it, I brought in some experiences from 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 subsequent weeks. Now you mentioned yes, this happened twenty years ago, but I actually took copious notes and journals, oh. sketchbooks mm-hmm. when I was there. So so when writing Sunshine, I went back and I I reread these notes that I wrote. You know, between the ages of sixteen and twenty two, uh, of the different campers I work with and the different moments that happened and the different emotions that were had. Um, now some of the quote unquote characters. Uh, the campers are the are named after the actual people and, mm-hmm. and look like the actual kid or family, uh, and that's because I still have a relationship with the families. You know, I still we still keep in contact and with with their blessing, use names and likenesses. Now, um, some some people I just you know lost contact with and, and there's no way of getting in touch mm-hmm. with them. So um, you know, because of HIPAA and because of respecting yeah. their privacy, uh, change names or or combined experiences with with campers with similar similar illnesses to to portray that story in those experiences. All right, yeah. So at Sunshine, I was kind of curious, you, you show this a little bit in the book, but I was really curious about how they ensure that all the campers really have a fun, full, joyful experience, even those who have some physical limitations. Do they, um, what kind of um, sort of adaptive um, uh, recreational activities do they have um, to make this, you know, fantastic for everybody? Well, I mean, you name it, and it, it's accessible to everything, you know. So, for instance, there's, uh, it, you know, in the book, there's it talks about the climbing tower. Mm-hmm. And uh, in one of the main kids that I'm charged with taking care of uh, doesn't just have his legs in his, in his wheelchair. And so, for instance, the climbing tower also has a an adaptive program called the Team Lift, in which uh, the individual would be tied into a harness, mm-hmm. and that climbing rope would loop up to the top of the tower and then down to the to the team and that team at your direction and at your at your vocal direction will will help you get to the top of that tower. Oh, that's yeah, it's it, it's pretty impressive the the um the options that they have and, and the uh, the adaptations that they have. Um, you know, so with with um, Hey Kiddo and now with Sun, Sunshine, you're able to tell a very difficult personal stories with in a way that is fundamentally positive and hopeful and often funny. How do you how do you achieve this balance? 
I mean, I think that's just life itself. Right? Mm. I mean, life <laughs> life is filled with the dark True. and the light, and no matter no matter how difficult and awful things are, you can certainly find the humor in them. And you know, no no matter how well things are going, certainly there's 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 something that can be just devastating that happens. And um, and I think that's just innate in my personality. You know, I think that the graphic memoir. It's the most I've been able to just 100% be myself mm-hmm. uh, because that's that's also my personality. And that was the personality of my grandparents who raised me where, um, you know, a, a, certainly a dark sense of humor at times and a positive outlook on life. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell, tell, can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing a graphic novel, um, which I'm just really curious about. You know, what comes first? Um, again, my guest is Jared J. Krasaska, and we're talking about his new book, Sunshine. When you're writing a graphic novel, um, what, what process comes first? Do you um, write text first or images, or does it all happen together? And what's your process? Well, it's a bit different between graphic novel and graphic memoir, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when you're writing something that's fictional, uh, it's a very different experience than writing something that's, that's based on your own life. So, uh, you know, I'll, so to sort of give you a general answer for just say graphic literature overall, it's a little bit of both. When you might make, you might have an idea and you might make a few sketches, um, and you might make some character sketches, you're, 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 you're thinking in your head about moments that you might have in the story, be it you know, fictional or derived from your life. Um, but but really, uh, uh, you have to have a tight script before you go into the actual work of the graphic novel. So I start all of my graphic literature with scripts, like just one, hmm. just like one would write a script for yeah, a TV making. show yeah. or a movie or stage play. And that gets edited and that gets combed over. And then once the script is, is really tight, then you make sketches. So how do you then, how are you going to visually tell the story? And when you get to the sketch stage, that you realize that um, you're going to find what the right balance is with what part of the story will be told with the text and what part of the stories will be told with the illustrations. Because the, you know, the, the words and pictures are teammates. And, yeah. you know, the pictures, the pictures aren't subservient to the text, but at the same time, like, you don't, you don't want the illustrations to necessarily contradict the text, but you don't want them to tell you the exact same part of the story that the text is, because that would be redundant. Right, right, right. It's really fascinating. I didn't really think of it that much like filmmaking, um, but it clearly, it clearly is, and clearly has to be. Uh, Bill, Bill has a question. I'd like to know who does the editing. Is it one person who looks at both the words and the drawings, or are there different people who give you advice and counsel or suggestions with regard to the different aspects of a graphic memoir? So I, you know, I have my editor, and my editor, he combs through the script, and he gives me notes on what's working, be it big picture, and you know, eventually as you go through the drafts, smaller, nuanced sentence structure changes. Um, and it's mostly him that I'm hearing from when it, when it comes to the art. I mean, he's, he's also a seasoned graphic novel mm-hmm. editor. So, uh, for instance, he might point out, okay, well, in this panel, in the art, the character's mouth isn't open, but they're talking. Or in this scene, like for instance, there, I remember vividly there's one scene like where the character was taking a drink, and there was a word bubble, and he's like, you know, I, I think you're talented at many things, Jared, but I, you're not able to talk and drink at the same time. <laughs> uh, Jared, this is Buzz, and my question involved. You, you went to Camp Sunshine when you were 16 years of age, and you spent a few years there. I think until your first year in college. Are 
Does this reflect your perceptions as a 16, 17, 18-year-old, or is it the perceptions of Jared Kozaska now as an adult reflecting back on those experiences? Well, a little bit of both. So the, the story itself is framed with, you know, the adult Jarrett opening, opening the, the photo journal and, and like the, the tiny little, and this is like another thing where like the pictures are part of the story. So there's a wedding ring on the hand of, of the, the hands that are Jarrett's opening, oh, yeah. opening the, the photo journal. Um, I needed to give a macro view on, you know, to, to give a little bit more perspective on what might have become of some of the families, because I, I knew that would be something people would be thinking about. Um, but I'm definitely getting into the mindset or remembering the mindset of the, you know, the fear and nervousness, uncertainty I had as a 16-year-old going into this work. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And that, that um, I feel, in some ways, is, I think, part of how you balance the really difficult pieces with the, the, the joy and the curiosity and the hope, because a lot of it is through that, you know, 16, 17-year-old old brain that, that can kind of see things that way, it seems like. Um, yeah. So you, um, you clearly grew up with a strong sense of empathy. Um, and now that you're a parent, um, what is your approach to raising kids with a strong sense of empathy? Well, I mean, certainly we've had to have a lot of empathy for them the past three years. <laughs> That's for it's, sure. As difficult as this has been for us, it's just been brutal for them to have had such a disruption in their in their childhood. Um, you know, it's like, again, obviously, as a parent, it can be hard when you're in the thick of it to stop and ask, where is this behavior coming and why is this behavior happening yeah. when you might just be at the absolute end of, end of your rope? Um, so for me, it really comes to, as a parent, you know, Gina, my wife and I, we, we approach with like, you know, why, what is this kid going through that's, that's causing such behavior? So like, let's, let's ask the why, what's, what's going on before just the immediate, you know, direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so um, I'm talking with Jarrett J. Krasoska, author of uh, the graphic novel Sunshine. And I want to ask a little bit, a pivot a bit to the event on April 18th. On April 18th, at, which is a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Jarrett will be launching Sunshine with a live unabridged reading uh, brought to life via a multimedia presentation and with local performers. Um, and so what, what will that look like? I'm, I'm so excited. So it, this is publication day. Yeah. It's going to be the first day the book's out in the world. And this is something I was doing with Hey Kiddo just before the pandemic shut everything down. And I'm, I'm picking right back up where, where I left off when, when the world shut down. And what this looks like, so, there, so imagine the, the beautiful Ornate Academy music. Mm-hmm. And there will be 10 readers, multi-generational local readers, seated on the stage, uh, one of them being your alum, Mr. Monte Belmonte. Okay, wonderful. And, and we'll all have scripts that are highlighted for the different parts. And while we're reading, much like you, you would think maybe a radio play or mm-hmm. um, a read-through, the art from the book will be projected larger than life on the screen, as it and it will pan and scan through the panels that um, of the section that we're reading. And like the like the audiobook adaptation of Sunshine, uh, there will be sound effects. So, for instance, if you hear a door slam, 
if you hear somebody fall on the lake, if you see somebody fall on the lake, you're going to hear that in the soundscape. So you so, have a Foley artist. Uh, yeah, Foley artist too, yeah. And it really is, um, it's, like, it's like the theater of the mind while you're in an actual theater watching it. That's, really that's very cool. So that's going to be 7 p.m. on April 18th. And tickets, Academy of Music, that's A-O-M Theater, theater. it ends with an R-E, oh, yes. not E-R. So A-O-M Theater <laughs> with an R-E dot com. You could get um, tickets. And I wanted to ask, in the review of, of this uh, book that I saw in the Gazette, it talks about your children, Zoe, Lucia, and... Xavier, they're ages 14, 11, and 6. What did they say to their dad? Did they read the graphic novel? And if so, what were their perceptions? I, well, they've, yeah, they've all read my books uh, to certain degrees. So Hey Kiddo has been read by my, my the two older ones. You know, my younger one is 6, so he's not quite ready yet for some of those more intense themes. Yeah. Um, although, you know, of course, all the kids from day one are very open about why I was raised by my grandparents. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, obviously for Hey Kiddo, it's a really neat way for the kids to understand their family history um, as, as they get older and grow beyond their, their smaller pools of, of peers. I think it's kind of funny and odd for them that they are, have their friends have grown up with my books and they knew the books before we handed <laughs> to them. So uh, that's it's always been interesting to see that happen as they grow. Uh, certainly will be interesting for my eldest when she gets to Northampton High School and Hey Kiddo is a part of the health curriculum. Well, that'll be uh, very interesting. I didn't know it is. So it's part of the health curriculum there. That's wonderful. Yeah. And, um, and all of the kids uh, participate in the audiobook adaptations, uh, you know, in, in various ways. I mean, the, the audiobooks really are, literally like radio plays in that you you have, you know, all these different uh, voice actors bring bring life characters to the ear. Yeah, well, yeah. it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Megan, for bringing Jared Kozaska uh, yeah, to our attention. There. So at the Academy of Music, April 18th, look at the Academy of Music website, get some tickets. And meanwhile, on behalf of Bill Newman and myself, thank you so much for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember to walk the walk. You know I always like my walking shoes Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth, supported by adult 4-H club leaders, are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. Call me, Tom, at 413 413- Five four five oh six one one. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 11 